special episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I'm here with two extra people. Um, Steve, a co-host on Crash Chords Podcast, is joining me today. And as well, our guest is Joe Mastropero, the merchant merchandise manager at Barnes & Nobles. I was going to get it out eventually. So we're here, for those listening, for something called Vinyl Day, which is an event that Barnes & Nobles is running. And tell us a little bit about what Vinyl Day is. Sure. Uh, well, Vinyl Day in particular is our showcase for uh, the medium itself. It's been growing pretty exponentially since we started rolling vinyl out into the store in September. And it's just been showing a lot of promise. And it's very interwoven with pop culture and just media in general. And this whole month we have a Get Pop Cultured event um, showing off everything from comics to TV shows to books. So we thought might as well put a vinyl day in there too. And we'll give it its own little showcase day. Sounds great. Well, I'd like to begin with a confrontation first, which I'll reformulate as a question in a little bit. But this is in regards to you, of course, being the proprietor of a retail outlet that promotes the sale of physical media. Now, there's a trend with media that is obvious to just about everyone who consumes it and everyone in our live audience. And that is, of course, the shift from physical media to digital media. Even when there is hardly a funeral procession every time one media format falls out of favor, for instance, I doubt many really mourn the death of the 8-track tape, we can still at least sense that we're on a steady crawl forward toward more manageable utilities. And it's a crawl noticed by, I think, anyone who's ever had to execute a massive media overhaul in the course of their lifetime, VHS to DVD and so forth. But ultimately, apart from the vanity, I think, of wanting a grand and imposing physical library, essentially showpieces for our personal collection, I think that what most listeners do seek is a reliable safety net for their libraries, a dynamic, infinitely renewable digital archive of just about everything we consume. Even outside of music, this is old news. There have been steady talks since the 70s about the road to the fabled paperless society that we, by all counts, should have reached several times over by now, yet it remains just out of reach. Still, the fact is that in today's time, much of this has come to fruition, albeit in a splotchy, patchwork sense. Theorists just never could have predicted the exact order in which it took place. So we're looking at several different forms of media. Let's take articles, for example. A lot of articles sold in bulk here, of course, in books at Barnes & Noble, but as far as daily consumption is concerned, articles are a highly disposable form of media, and digital reproduction is the perfect filter for rapid consumption and the detachment with which most people, or a lot of people at least, approach isolated articles and regular columns. Now, books are kind of a mixed bag. With smaller wholesale bookstores in almost total capitulation, that leaves our subject, Barnes & Noble, which has come out top dog owing to a fantastic business model, if I may say, and PR campaign, a pleasant staff, and a reliably relaxed reading environment, replete with coffee, some chairs, pastries, but overall an environment that I think most would argue, or many would argue, offsets the exorbitant price gouging that can happen, of course, in an environment like that. Because its patrons have, I think, by virtue of the market, mostly been whittled down to those of choice rather than of necessity. This model keeps print viable, at least for now. And then finally there's music, which is also a mixed bag, but it's recently been marked by a sudden, widespread, and unprecedented revisitation of its oldest and most trustworthy format, 
the vinyl. And that's what we're here to discuss today. So I'll be returning to a lot of what I just laid down. But first, to begin, why do you think vinyl, and this is to you, Joe, why do you think vinyl has edged its way back into the mainstream market? Uh, well, I mean, vinyl in particular seems to be, instead of being part of this evolution of media, it seems to be its own little offshoot. Because the difference from going from an A-track to a cassette and from a cassette to a CD seems to be a bit more technologically focused, whereas the vinyl itself has a certain uniqueness to it that hasn't really been uh, reproduced in newer formats. Do you think that owes itself to its age specifically? Um, Just the fact that it was the first? And I think so. May actually hold out? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was an older time. We had a different technology then, and there's no real way to reproduce a lot of things that... Uh, they did back then in the analog part of the media, you know. That's true. In terms of analog, it really is the only one of its kind. Start From there on, you start really becoming more and more detached. And tapes, they still call it analog, but it's still a form of just like arrangement of molecules. It's very removed in a sense. It's, it's kind of a form of detachment, but there's nothing really like vinyl. There's nothing else like it just recording vibrations itself right onto a platform. I feel like there probably will always be a little bit of a market for that. Um, and what exactly is involved today, of course, in terms of like bringing vinyl back to the stage and, and mass marketing to a public that has probably been removed? At least if you weren't a, a aficionado or a personal lover of vinyl, there was at least a 20-year gap there where it was perceived to be dead and would remain so. So what do you think is the push right now for bringing it back? Um, well, I would say uh, mainly due to this whole retro style that came back mainly through like say the the residents of places like Williamsburg uh, they really invest themselves in prior forms of media um, that kind of owe themselves to starting everything that we have now so like vinyl uh, typewriters instead of using computers and things like that uh, there's just this classic feel to those things and it's cyclical. They're always. I feel that they're probably always going to come back, even if you know they die for a little while. Um, another good example is the comic books. Yeah. Um, comic media and graphic novels is one of our largest selling sections in our entire store now. So you think it's mostly just the trend of like returning the, to kitsch value and all yes. that stuff. It's really. It, it. But now that the trend is there, it gave it like a little bit of like a push, and now it's its own thing, and it's starting to take off on its own. Right. People come in and buy records now, not just because, oh, it used to be the cool thing, but because it's the thing now to do, and it's, I think it's perfectly fine just having its own place here now. Sure. I, f I think also part of it is, for a period, I guess, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when vinyl was less frequent, it became a collector's item. Like, collectors got vinyl, but everyone else kind of just let it fall and moved on to whatever the new medium was. Now, since they're readily available again, like, those who wanted to be collectors or wanted to have that content can now get it with ease. And I think that's a big part of it, too. Like, for me, I'm looking at a 25th anniversary edition of Michael Jackson's Thriller across from me. That's an album I own on CD and that I've never owned on vinyl. I don't know that my dad does, and he has thousands of records. That would be a great addition to a collection for someone who loves music because it's one of the best pop albums ever made. And a re-release of it means it'll be better quality, remastered. And I think stuff like that is really interesting 
to people who love music because they can go and get a thing that wasn't available to them before. And also, it's unfair to be so broad spectrum about this. It, it really is a, a it's divisive by genre itself. For instance, you could say the mainstream public is returning to vinyl because it seems like the thing, and it seems like there's just that personal connection they can kind of reacquire. But for many people as early as the 80s, they kind of knew that the second this was starting to shift away, they were close to their vinyls for a lot of different reasons. For instance, I know like the electronica scene, they stayed really, really close to vinyl because it they immediately noticed something it could give them that a lot of things couldn't. For instance, that, that bass range, that, that register that just seems more more full and more pronounced on a record than it does in any other format. You could claim that, you know, as 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 in depth as that digital copy can be, you could probably reproduce it. But there's something about the resonance. I don't know. And it also has to do with the speakers that were out at the time, that there were little niches. And you even found this like in the Bowery in Manhattan. I found that there were a lot of uh, stores back in the 90s into the 2000s that stayed really, really true. They were all just about vinyl. They had rows of turntables set up and allowed you to come over and test certain things. They didn't sell any other medium except vinyl. So for them, this is almost a redundant conversation. But, you know, to mainstream public, it's almost a necessary conversation because we need to start taking it seriously. It's not just that of the niche. Mm -hmm. So I'll go to another question here. I think owing to the relative survival of independent record stores, as in contrast to the present scarcity of independent bookstores, do you see Barnes & Noble specifically pursuing the same domination in music retail? Well, domination, maybe a little bit of a heavy word there, <laughs> um, but we do like to have a high quality customer experience, so in order to do that we try to purvey as many things as we can and purvey them well. So uh, while I don't know if we're going to try to just blanket the entire like corporate you know our swath in final, we definitely want to make sure it's a mainstay now. It sure. definitely wants to be. It's 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 here. We set our display that you can see over there up a week ago. It's not going anywhere. Well, even over the course of my lifetime, the music collection at Barnes and Noble has really, really, really grown. I think that I remember a time in which it was almost a secondary choice. It was like, yeah, we have some music we offer a little bit. It's, you know, if in the course of your travels to pick up books, you feel like you really need this latest record, then Barnes & Noble was that place. But now it really offers such a wide selection, also an incredible selection of, uh, of compilations, compilations from older artists. Right now it's the go-to place, as far as I'm concerned, for all classical music, because you really can't get that anywhere else other than maybe online, you'd search. But as far as retail to, to survey, this is the place. Everything else, it, it's really moved more toward that niche. There are uh, record stores, and broad, not just vinyl stores, but record stores that are a little more focused toward, uh, toward metal, toward rock, toward all these things. But Barnes & Noble kind of aims to pursue them all at once. I think that will keep it very viable. Yeah. I think also, like, with Barnes & Nobles, I've noticed in, in my long 30 years on this planet um, that they were very focused on books, obviously, for a very long time. But when I remember when they opened the board game and, like, kind of nerd culture or bobblehead, all that, that section, like, it blew up because they had the capacity to get the stock that a lot of other stores couldn't. And also, they brought it all together. If you're a fan of music, of books, of comic books, of board games, which tend to have a lot of overlap... Now you can go to one store and get it all, where it used to be you'd have to go to Sam Goody.
city for a CD. You'd have to go to, I don't know, wherever. Like, you'd have to go to all of these different stores to get the different products. Now it's all in one convenient place. And they're also not just doing, like Steve was saying, how some places only sell metal or punk or whatever else. They're focusing very hard to sh sell a huge cross-section of music. You know, having Michael Jackson right next to Lana Del Rey and right next to Paul McCartney and right next to Dr. Dre, that's great. So if you're someone like me who likes just about everything, you can go and go, oh, I'll take one of those and one of those and one of those. And, you know, there's a variety, which I think is great. Uh, but that's why I kind of want to, you know, you almost scoff at the word domination, but I kind of want to almost harp on that a little bit. Like with that model, why do you think it couldn't perhaps, let's say, in 15, 20 years, you know, take over? People do like to be nitty, but they also like options. You could equate it almost to the same thing that happened in, like, Home Depot, Walmart. If you provide it all at once, all of a sudden you find that the smaller places will start dissipating. It's just, again, as I said earlier, like, you couldn't have predicted the exact order in which it took place. Well, mm -hmm. okay, it happened to some mediums that didn't happen to music yet, but do you think it's a matter of time? Well, I mean, unless you're, honestly, unless you're in the city, there really isn't many places other than conglomerate, like, large stores to get music anyway. Yeah. Um, I would say that while we may have been the uh, reason we're now the only bookstore, more or less, except for maybe one or two on the island, uh, I would say larger uh, media outlets like Barn uh, Best Buy and things like that would be the ones that forced a lot of music retailers, small music retailers, out of you know local communities, things like that. Hmm. I mean, those stores did come around and become massive first. Like Barnes & Noble's always been here, but mm -hmm. you guys... Like Steve said, I always saw the smaller cross-section of music, so it wasn't really, and, and a lot of independent music stores have disappeared long before you guys kind mm -hmm. of in, uh, enlarged your collection. Yeah. What I like now is um, a lot of those larger stores tend to have more, like you said, of the niche, like this is what's cool now, this is what, what's interesting now, but we still have, you know, a soul section and country section and classical music, both composer right. and vocalist. A reliable focus on every genre. Yeah, we, yeah. We, whatever we do, we want to make sure that everybody is included. Well, there's something else I, I wanted to touch upon, which I, I started to touch upon earlier, and that's like that whole shift toward uh, digital media. Now, obviously, Barnes & Noble has vested interest in keeping the physical media around. It's mm -hmm. their primary selling point. But uh, considering what has happened to some areas, and I don't just mean the, the there's like two different spectrums here. One is the the move from, you know, con smaller shops up to conglomerates and so forth. But then there's also that media where maybe people won't really want a physical collection at all at some point. I remember there's a reliability that at least is around with digital media. And I was wondering whether you see this kind of affecting uh, Barnes & Noble or other shops in the same way. Um, well, I'll tell you, uh, maybe a few years ago, I would have said yes that digital media is this thing that we need to be prepared for that may start eating into sales and something that we might need to find a way to mitigate. Mm -hmm. But after our nook landed about five and a half years ago, um, our physical media hasn't taken much of a hit. I mean, it's basically, it's more of just an extension than a replacement is wow. what I've been seeing. A lot of people will come in and purchase like physical copy books and still get the digital one too because just like with vinyl books can be a bit of a showpiece people like to show off their libraries I like my bookshelves that I have at home um, and it's not something that I'm really worried about just like with vinyl the printed page has been around for a long time and while there have been ways to do it digitally um, there's just like with vinyl something about holding a book people say that there's something about the smell of the paper so, so I don't expect 
newspaper or physical media to disappear anytime soon, that's well, for sure. Also, most vinyls, in my experience with buying uh, newer vinyls, they all come with digital downloads, every one of them, because everybody doesn't have a portable record player. So, like, I bought a comedy album by comedian Jonah Ray, who we've talked about on the podcast before, and his new comedy album came with a digital code, so you could go home and download it as well. And I think that supports what Joe is saying, that they're meant to coincide, not replace, because they understand people aren't carrying giant record players with them under their arm. Yet. They're, yet. But, but they will download it, listen to it on their iPod, but when they're at home, they'll still choose to pick up the record, because it'll be a different quality, it'll be you know, on a giant stereo, it'll be a different experience, especially if you're someone who focuses on listening to music and not doing other things with it. You want that experience of two tall speakers and turntable and just sitting on your couch and taking it in. Sure. I think it's a case of really showpiece versus ease. I mean, that probably will always coexist because people are always going to want the ease of digital copies, but at the same time, the showpiece, like, it, it is a proud thing to own a collection, especially one that you've been building for years and years and years. Vinyls are the kind of thing you pass down to your children or you pass down to the next person who appreciates them. They go from one person to the next, you know, as lives transfer, and it's just, it, that's a really, really close thing. So I think to have any retail store that perpetuates that is, is well, it's inherent in a store itself, I think, is to mm -hmm. perpetuate that. There's one other thing here. The other deal is obviously the case of streaming services, because that's, that's something that also exists. It coexists, and I think you're looking at a situation where three things may coexist at the same exact time, and that's streaming, along with digital ownership, along with physical ownership. Do you see that transpiring? Do you see that coming to fruition? Or do you see actually there being more of a... Uh, flip in the digital side of things between streaming versus digital ownership because digital ownership is kind of almost an oxymoron yeah uh that's true um i have started to see a um you know an increase in streaming media and things like that um well with things like hulu and uh you know netflix and they're, they're definitely they have their place um i feel that streaming will always be situational but that that's my personal thing uh, if a person doesn't have a good enough internet connection to watch things on Netflix, then they won't be able to do it that way. They'll have to either get digital downloads or physical copies. Right. So it depends on, you know, who you are. It's a, that's a personal thing, I think. I don't know if there'll ever be a point where everybody will be streaming all their media, but I feel that there'll be a little bit here and there. I know I stream a little bit. I know my wife does. Uh, well, I think also the thing is, uh, at least living in New York, we don't have a perpetual internet connection everywhere yet. The subways are our dark zone where you can't stream anything most of the time. So physical media or digital media download that you own will always take priority. Like I have Spotify and I pay for it and I love it, but I would still have a record collection and I still want to buy CDs and I still want to have iTunes because then when I go into that hole where there is no contact to the outside world, I can still get my music. But Joe did bring up a good point in terms of like your closeness to the medium itself. I think if you're close to it, sure, you'll build a library, a physical library. But if it's just something that you enjoy consuming, like kind of what I mentioned about articles, and I don't mean to be so broad spectrum about that. I think a lot of people are very close to their articles. But it does seem to be a, such a rapidly consuming thing. Not everyone racks up collections. Um, it's less common, at least, for all their forms. Also, what you said about uh, TV shows, it's to the point now where, you know, people used to do ridiculous things, leaps and bounds to record all of their shows on VH tape as of the time in which they were released, and then sooner or later they started releasing box sets and then DVD box sets, and now 
pe reason people just embrace Netflix is because they're kind of tired of it. Even if you love a, a TV show, sometimes you just want to watch it, and you just want to watch it immediately. And that's the way some people approach music, but it's it does seem to be the holdout in that particular department. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. I, I feel like That's music kind of is a little different, though, only because I feel like streaming is mostly a gateway to un something more permanent. Mm. Like, I love Spotify, and we use it a lot on the podcast. When we review an album every week, we listen to it on Spotify, or at least I do, every week. And I pay for it, so I'm contributing to the service, and also so I'm contributing to the artist. But that said, a lot of albums that I love that I hear on Spotify, I go out of my way to buy on CD or on iTunes or even on vinyl if uh, I had a record player that worked, you know. But the idea that I think those streaming services are more designed as a gateway for for entertainment medium that isn't movies or TV. Like music and video games, I feel like you'll stream it or download it if you, you know, kind of want to try it. But if you really love it, you'll still go buy it. Okay, so this conversation is unanimously pro-physical media. Well, I'm glad we at least cleared that up. Uh, <laughs> um, but then, all right, then that leads kind of to another question, because obviously there's a split between physical media. Obviously, this began with the return to vinyl in such a big way, but of course there's still other forms of media. Why do you believe the same thing couldn't necessarily happen to, let's say, the 8-track tape? I, which I kind of snickered at, but frankly, I know yeah, a lot of people were disappointed, especially for people who had, like, that was their, their deck in the car, and that's all they had. Well, of course, the second that medium kind of died, and it died a fairly quick death, then all of a sudden your car is, well, it's going to be useless anyway, it's going to be out of date anyway, but for a while, there's, you're not going to be able to fill up a collection. It's going to be very, very narrow. Why do you believe, though, that it shouldn't happen? Why do you believe that there's not some kind of connection with these other forms of media well or if, is there i'm just my, <laughs> well no my my personal opinion on that i would think would involve the quality of the medium i've never heard someone say well i'm sure there are proponents out there saying oh man i love this album it sounded so much better on a track <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard that on vinyl and i happen to own you know a fair amount of blue oyster cult records yeah. and i do appreciate them and they sound a little bit better in my opinion to the cds that i own um but again i've never really heard that for that for for cd or cassette tape because i feel it going from vinyl to a track was a big change because it was a whole new medium Things weren't on these large discs. They were recorded via magnets. Also, just tape. The, the length of time. I mean, mm -hmm. we're kind of used to like rapid medium changes ever mm -hmm. since 8-track. It started the trend. It's like, well, it got me a new thing every every few years or so. Mm -hmm. But vinyl had been around for nearly 100 years. Yeah. I mean, well, not vinyl per se, but, but at least idea. analog. Yeah. And that's, that's just something mm -hmm. that maybe just by time itself, mm -hmm. by the virtue of the length of time in which it's been around, do you think that's going to really keep it? Um, like, I really just feel that it's going to stay because there's something you can't really do with vinyl that you can do with the other mediums and it's basically all we're doing is increasing its efficiency you know a tracks were more efficient than vinyl and cassettes were more efficient than a tracks cds more efficient they increase efficiency but not quality necessarily. The quality not necessarily gets much better it got better because the hardware got better but there hasn't been a huge jump from cd to a new physical form it's just a more efficient digital form right I don't foresee vinyl becoming a more efficient style of um, media. It's what it is. 
Well, I mean, I see your point certainly in terms of tapes. I have also never heard anyone say it sounds so much better on cassette of any kind. But but by the time CDs came around, I know a lot of people were naysayers, which is why we had that sort of 10 to 15, 20 year gap where vinyls were considered dead. Because the theory behind digital reproduction is, of course, that you can get everything, everything, every bit of detail you can possibly muster down to the bit. And, you know... At, at that point, there started to be real arguments in terms of just the, the validity of the claims that people were actually saying, oh, no, I really do hear it better on vinyl. And people were saying, it's in your head. Maybe that's nostalgia talking. Well, um, it might not Is be that true. <laughs> uh, well, uh, there are a lot of different biases that go on in a person's head that can't really be quantified easily. Um, there definitely could be a psychological thing, um, a person's you know, uh, opinion on change, and things like that might affect it. Um, and while it's true that you could probably down to the bit and the note re um, uh, reconstruct reconstruct yeah thank you uh, reconstruct a vinyl in perfectly digital format, um, I feel that just the pure like uh, artificial feel to it will just in someone's head make them think oh this isn't going to be nearly as good. And mm-hmm. once you get that bias in your head, then you're going to think that way. Um, but that's just such a part of just the human, like the, the human experience that you're not, you can't, you can't do anything about that. Yeah. It's just part of being a person, part of being a human being. No, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think I'm mostly playing devil's advocate at this point. I, 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 I've heard it myself. I, I've talked about electronica before, and I really, really do hear it in terms of electronica. I think there's a bass range that really can't be reproduced, and that owes itself specifically just to the manner in which, you know, there's no, there's no middleman when it comes to vinyl. And I think that's, that's probably its most powerful asset going well into the 21st century and beyond. Um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. We talked a lot about Vinyl Day and why we're here, but now let's talk about you a bit. Um, uh, we mentioned you in the beginning. Yeah, I know. You're going to have to talk about yourself. I'm uh, sorry. Okay. All right. Um, so if you had to pick, I know, I think I already know the answer to this because we've been friends for a while, but um, who is your favorite band? You have a number one favorite band if you had to pick one of all time. If you can't pick one, pick a few. Just rattle off a few that tend to be at the top of your list as far as listening goes. As far as listening goes? Um definitely would have to be uh, Bare Naked Ladies, The Doors, and Goldfinger. That's an interesting mix. That's a quite interesting mix. Those are my top three. Um, <laughs> and would you say that stuff, because that's what you got into when you were younger, I mean, all those bands that I'm thinking of now have been around since we were kids, at least. We're not that old. Um, <laughs> or I like to think I'm not. Um, uh, do you think it's because it stayed with you because of when you heard it, and it just kind of perpetuated, you grew in fandom with it, or is it something that those bands you discovered more recently and you went back and listened to them? Um, well, The Doors have definitely been with me for right. a long time. Sure. Um, that I could owe to my father. Uh, and that I feel with all three of them, um, when I listen to them, I feel something that I don't quite always feel when I listen to other bands. Mm-hmm. So no matter what mood I'm in, I can always listen to it and enjoy it. And I, it's reliable. I'm always... I always know that when I put them on, I'm gonna have a good time. I experience a similar thing with the Doors. You always find something new, especially in the detail of like Ray Manzarek's keyboard. It's like something you missed in the solo the first time round. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a different resonance, especially also the fact that it lacks bass and it makes up for the bass in terms of keyboard, which mm-hmm. is why I also kind of prefer that on vinyl. Come to think of it, it's a hell of an example. Mm-hmm. 
um, like me, I believe that you've been listening to music pretty much since you were born. Um, yes. Do you do you remember a defining moment when you were younger that, like, I'm really into music, this is what I want to explore, or did you kind of just always kind of like it? Like, for me, when I was, I think I was eight or nine, uh, my dad got me and him tickets to a Billy Joel concert, and I went with a friend of my brother's. And that was, that was the moment. I'd been listening to music before that, but that was the moment where I was like, I listen to music differently than I think other people do. Like I really get wrapped up in the experience and the 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 intricacy of it all, and that concert really kind of got me there. Since then, I've listened to lots of other music besides Billy Joel, but that was kind of the defining moment. Do you have something like that that really made music kind of impact you? Absolutely. Um, probably two, actually. Um, the first one is when a friend of mine in junior high school let me borrow a copy of Metallica's The Black Album. Uh, it was the first time I really listened to music other than whatever we had on the radio in the car and I listened to it straight through and I did it again <laughs> I did it again and I was like this is really good I'm going to try to find some more stuff and I go to my mother and ask her please you know, get me a CD or two I want to listen to some, new mu- some other music and uh, for my birthday I got I think it was the most recent album by Hootie and the Blowfish <laughs> <laughs> which I also listened to not three times back to back, but I did enjoy it. Um, but the real moment where I truly said to myself, this is something I need to consume, was probably um, one of the first shows I saw at a local punk venue in uh, Brooklyn called The, the Temple. Mm-hmm. It, was on, um, it was on a Thursday night, and it was a, a band playing called Treeport, which was from Georgia. They were a local punk band that were touring. Um, they like to have a guy dressed up in a dinosaur suit jumping on a pogo stick, and their music was exceptionally raw and had a very just powerful feel to it. And I was there, and the, they were playing in front of me, and the music was just hitting me, and I thought to myself, this is something I really need to start consuming. And from there, it just shot out to everywhere. <laughs> it's funny. I actually remember that Treefort show. I believe either we had gone together or I was just at that show. But the minute you mentioned it, I kind of got a wash with that band and their sound. A band who I haven't listened to in a while. And you f- kind of sometimes... What I like about music is even if you forget about an artist for a very long time because you've moved on or they're doing stuff you don't really like, if a new album comes out and you get really into them again, you kind of get a wash with all the experience you've gotten, gotten from them before. I had that experience with Weezer recently. The last couple albums I was not really a fan of, but their newest record was exceptional, especially compared to previous works and compared to music as a whole. And I kind of got that again. All the concerts I saw, all the moments I had had with that music kind of came back to me, which I thought was wonderful. And I think something that music does that a lot of other mediums doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what would you say? I don't want to put you on the spot and say what what music you hate or, or that's bad. Like, I don't want to put you on, on the spot as far as that. We all have music that we don't like. But our... Are there, do you find that there are any bands that really get you to turn the radio or change the station or stop listening? Or you kind of will let everything at least hit you once and give it a shot? Um, for me, honestly, the only thing that gets me to change the station on the radio are commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and I've it's had... Slick. <laughs> it's, no, but it's true. I mean, there's very, very few things that I won't listen to. Um, honestly, the only thing that I don't really listen to much is country because I don't have a lot of um, outlets to hear it 
We don't have any out here. Yeah, but if I but if I did, I would listen because yeah. you know everything has something to offer. I mean that makes sense. I mean for me, I didn't listen to a lot of folk or country because I didn't have access to it, mm-hmm. and now I've had a lot more access to it where I've given a lot more of it a chance, and I find that there's a lot more in the medium that I like than I thought. Because at first, I you know everyone's got a stereotypical image of a genre, mm-hmm. whether it's metal, country, rap. Like you you picture a specific stereotype, and then you assume well it's all like that. I can't possibly like it. And I found in the last decade, especially because of YouTube, because of Spotify and other things that have niches easily accessible, you can break those stereotypes easily and go, oh, I do like this one band in that genre. Maybe I'll like other bands in that genre and give it more of a chance. Whereas when you're spending 20 bucks on a CD and you're buying a CD once a week maybe, it's harder to be more forgiving because if you buy an album that you spent that much on and you hated it, you're like, well, I'm not going to buy anything else by this band or in this genre because I don't want to waste my money. Whereas now with streaming, it's kind of like, oh, well, I'll give this show a shot or I'll give this song a shot. Oh, I like that. Let's try a few more things. Oh, I like that. I'll go buy it. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a question. Despite your own influences or your own leanings necessarily as in a, your career as a bookstore manager, what do you find to be most popular these days? Um, in terms of in terms of music, or, oh, in, in terms of music, music for the most part. What do you think? I mean, you you described a little earlier about which sections have grown. Do you mm-hmm. find there to be trends within this, considering that you encounter a lot of people daily? Um, well, I would say yeah. There there's certain people that come in for certain things. Uh, as far as music goes, um, obviously pop rock is one of our larger sellers, just because it has pop and rock all commingling. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, other than that, it would be our classical section because, like you said, it's one of our larger, um, one of the larger classical sections you can find. Um, it's really hard to say other than media types in the music section. Like um, we have DVDs, we have Blu-rays, and within those, um, our Criterion uh, selection tends to sell very well. Um, but specific genre, there really isn't too much to really track. So the what people are buying is really reflective of the eclectic nature of, of the store itself. Yeah. Gotcha. So um, we've obviously established that you um, you listen to a large variety of music. I know you used to sing in a band at one point mm-hmm. and, and, and play music yourself also. I know lately, of course, you have a wonderful son and a beautiful wife, and so you don't play a lot of music as much. If you could get back into music and play in a band or sing in a band or play an instrument, is there a kind of genre you might be more excited to jump into now because when we were kids there was some fusion, but now the fusions have kind of commingled more steadily? Is there a specific genre you'd be more interested in trying to sing in or play a guitar in? Um, in particular, I would say I would probably want to try to find a space in between classic rock and, like, probably ska music, somewhere in between. Hmm. That's where I would want to be. Okay. Energetic, but not screaming, actual singing, stuff like that. Those That's are important requirements. It's also still kind of relevant, especially in this immediate area, in, like, the mm. five boroughs outer into the metro area, northern Jersey and such. That's still very, very strong. So uh, mm-hmm. so you live in the right place for it. Perfect. Congratulations. <laughs> and I actually have to um, counter what you said. I'm actually playing more music now oh. that my son is born than I did previously. Uh, me and him have been um, learning the harmonica together. Oh, cool. Um, Does he do mostly a lot of waving it around? No. And, oh, he's he actually, actually playing? He's pretty good at getting noises to come out of it oh, good. when he's not trying to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> an um, important distinction to make. While I'm act, and I'll and I'll actually be like trying to read tablature, and he's just hyperventilating on it. But it's yeah. really adorable, you know. <laughs> and just getting him to play a musical instrument is fun, even one as simple as that. 
Um, well, it's quicker to learn things when you're younger, so really, really watch out for that like five, six territory because you're gonna get beaten. Probably. Watch I'm, out I'm for okay him. for it. I'm okay with it. Okay. Uh, he's okay to have a more talented son than him. I mean, I feel like we're headed Parent, in that direction anyway. Nature, yeah. Um, just talking about your son briefly, um, do you find that there are types of music within reason that you play for him that he really is attached to, or is he not really listening to anything but like kids shows and that kind of stuff? Uh, he really likes uh, the hot dog dance. Oh, from, uh, from Mickey Mouse, Mouse Clubhouse. Club very you know that bad. was actually written by They Might Be Giants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, have you tried playing any other They Might Be Giants for him to see if he likes it? Um, off and on. Uh, he's still young enough where he needs something usually visual to kind of pique his interest. But uh, we were actually at a um, kind of playhouse, like a uh, kind of like a free play gymnasium you can bring kids to, and some you know, some poppy music came on that I couldn't quite put the name or place on, and he started dancing and then he forced me to dance because if he's doing it so am I and we sat there doing the hot dog dance to what sounded maybe like Taylor Swift and you know he had a really good time so he definitely has a music bug in there mm-hmm. and I'll just hopefully once he sits down a little more and can just be in one spot for a little bit longer he'll get more into it I think but I expect him to be into um Energetic music, probably stuff like ska, maybe um, a little Floggy Mollies, things like that. I think he's gonna really like when he gets a little older. Well, of course, they might be giants. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, excel at writing kids' music, or mm-hmm. at least they dabbled into it. They've been around since 1989, and they dabbled into it circa 2002, and then from there forward, they decided, I think actually this is something that we could do as a sort of side career to the primary stuff we release, which even then could be considered uh, approachable for a child because they're just it's it's so uplifting and it's kind of it's simple, it's easy to follow along with but it's almost something that makes me want to eat my words because in discussing uh, kids music I mean that's something that well I only experienced on cassette with that little Fisher Price uh, thing with the um with the, the cassette player, you know, the little thing with the with the microphone, right? Mm-hmm. And with that, I, f- I found myself listening to most of the stuff that was out at the time. You know, Bob's sing-along for Sesame Street and so forth. And it's almost to the point where probably if I were to listen to that same music again on any other medium than a cassette, I'd probably be a little put off because I only associate it through the kind of wany nature of a very, very overplayed cassette. <laughs> so, yeah. I apologize. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and it's interesting because um, I've only dabbled in it a tiny, tiny amount, but there is a whole genre of, like, they might be giant-inspired kids' music out there called kindy rock, which <laughs> is I, kids' indie rock. It's That's kids' cute. indie rock, and it's it's a huge thing, and I barely scratched the surface, and once Mason starts sitting and listening a little bit more, I'm going to dive headfirst into. And uh, I've listened a little bit here and there, and it's fun and interesting and songs about naps and snack time but you know in, the important uh, stuff yeah but in it, it but in a a way that well they'll listen to that and then eventually when they get old enough there are other bands out there that sound enough like it that they'll instantly make the connection and then just it's a nice gateway um if there is a concert that you could take mason to i mean you could take him to concerts now it just might be difficult mm. but when he's old enough to go to, to go to a concert with you what would you want his first concert to be if it were up to you and not him since it might be up to up to him at that point um are we talking like fictional concert can i pick things that can't happen anymore sure or, let's, um, let's get imaginative yeah if i could pick anything i'd want to take him to a queen concert probably that's a good choice that's a good choice the remaining <laughs> the, yeah, the remaining queen. queen yeah the two-fifths or three-fifths left yeah um but um, a band roundabouts now that exist. Uh, I don't know. I'd honestly, I would almost want to do what I did with myself and take them to a local show. Yeah. See what the talent is around here and 
see how he feels because he'll have more of a connection with it if he does attach to it because it's from his community. I mean, yeah, that's how I got into live shows more quickly growing up in Staten Island is there were a lot of great local music venues, hole-in-the-wall places, and going there and seeing a show and getting to actually interact with the band. I mean, having a connection with the music is great, but getting to connect with the artist that created the music that you have a connection with, I think, takes it to another level. Sure. And so I think that's actually a really great idea. Also, it's one of those things where if you go to a local show and he doesn't want to be there anymore, you can make a quick exit. Mm -hmm. Also, in the development of a child who will be growing up with pretty much all the options that we had to experience, you know, one medium create, uh, replacing the other and such, do you think that you would sort of rear him in the way of, of well, these are all the options, this is what I had to go through, or are you kind of just going to let him find his own way in terms of, you know, what medium he chooses to listen to music through? Okay, well, this is more of a parenting question than a music question. <laughs> oh, it sure is. But um, I'm, I'll tackle music the same way I've been tackling everything that he wants to do or doesn't want to do, and if he shows promise and enjoys something, then I'll, you know, get him to do it more, I'll encourage it. If he doesn't seem to really want to do a particular thing, it's no big deal. So if he wants to be a, a streamer and just listen to nothing but you know Spotify, that's fine by me. If he wants to be more traditional and collect vinyl, I'll be all there for him too. And I'll try to give him as many options so he can pick along the way. Sure. That makes sense. Um, is there any other, let's, as we're starting to wrap up a bit, I want to go back to Barnes & Noble a bit and talk about, so this is part of an, a run of events that you're doing. Um, are there any other music events coming up at the store that you may want to talk about, let the audience know about? Well, um, sadly, this is the only music event that we have at the moment. Um, we do have our Criterion stuff on sale at the moment, which usually happens yearly. Um, People tend to like that because Criterion can be a little on the pricey side from time to time, mm -hmm. um, so it's nice. Do you uh, have any other events not related to music that are happening in the coming weeks like this, like uh, Vinyl Day? Well, um, we've this is well, we've been starting at July first, so we're kind of winding it down now. But we do have a um, James Patterson event tomorrow. I don't know if you, either of you are familiar with that particular author. My mother is a huge fan. Ah, okay. <laughs> so we'll be having a discussion about him and his writing tomorrow. Uh, later on in the uh, in the month, we're going to be having a kind of release party for Dr. Seuss's new book. I heard about that, that um, his wife found an, a book that was finished mm -hmm. that was never released. Yep. I think that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Titled, What Pet Should I Get? Nice. <laughs> I, I bet Mason will be way more excited than any of us about that. Is Maybe, he a, yeah. a, Is he a Dr. Seuss fan? or? He's starting to be now that he won't uh, try to eat, the book? eat and tear paper pages. Okay. Yeah, he's actually been a, a pretty um, rabid reader, even with like the the cardboard books. So I'm actually pretty excited about that. As um, someone who works in a bookstore, that seems, like, a bookstore, that yes. seems reasonable to be I'm excited like, oh, about that. Oh, thank gosh, she uh, enjoys at least something about what I do. <laughs> Um, so we do actually have a live audience, um, and I don't know if anybody has questions for Joe. Um, we can't really get you on mic, but we can repeat the question after you ask it. So if you have a question and it doesn't pick it up, or does, I'll still repeat it. Just so speak loudly. That's actually for all three of you. Sure. I agree or disagree because um, I'm a person that was overseas, and like the, like stuff is like the media comes out late, and it's like more expensive. So you're kind of, they're kind of like back in the times back then. So when I was overseas, I had a really big group of friends with the music that I listened to. Like, and, uh, and if I wanted a recommendation, like someone knew a different band or someone knew a different band. And then they kind of lost that when they came back to the United States because people tend to have more varied interests in music and all different types of genre, which is perfectly fine. It's just that I got kind of lost. And then I discovered um, Pandora. 
and that you can make a channel and and then it just it just puts more music into it like with the same genre like that mm -hmm. might feel the same and you could like it and dislike it and I've, I've managed to discover um, a lot of bands because of this and do you um, do you guys have you felt like do you feel the same way about it or speaking feel, specifically and, to Pandora not to, just in or general because I think a lot of the that's the one I, I found right. and I use but I think a lot the of the concept of building playlists recommend you yeah. stuff and you know they just kind of like put you on the tray for like a, a, a thing, you know, some different bands and sort of like that. paraphrase you're asking do we have like a s outlet for recommendation be it be it Pandora so, do you agree with like with the streaming media that like oh being a good way to recommend music to, you know that to you know keep yourself a larger window for music that you enjoy and you may not know about these bands because they're from Norway or sure. like this little island in the Pacific I'm inclined to agree, although I do find that I've I've been more impressed, I think, lately by Spotify than I have by Pandora, only because it's still to the point where you have to question the algorithms that they use in order to, you know, make those leaps and, and connect one, one channel with another. You say you like a particular artist, and let's say you create a playlist around uh, Jan Johannesson, who's a, a, a sort of a, a Swedish uh, jazz star. I, I'm... I'm He's a jazz piano player, and I, I was really, really into his work, but to be honest, the second I, I start putting that into Pandora, I, I created a station for it, and then all of a sudden, it kind of just brings me back to more, more familiar jazz. It brings me back to John Coltrane, it brings me back to Miles Davis, and that's not exactly what I was looking for, because after all, that's for, you know, that's Jazz 101. That's where you should begin. But I find that Jan Johannesson was doing something really, really unique, and the algorithms weren't really pointing me to anything. But then, of course, that's challenging, because there really isn't anything, as far as meta tags are concerned, that would link to other Swedish jazz. That's, <laughs> like, it's probably the only one of its kind. It's really a jazzy country. <laughs> exactly. But, actually, it was pretty phenomenal, just to speak a little what he did he actually incorporated like nordic themes yeah. like nordic folk music into the jazz itself which i was absolutely fascinated by but i can't say that i was too helped out by pandora but that was only one example mm -hmm. in other cases where you have more uh inferable meta tags then i do think it's a really really great source but i so far have been impressed by spotify a little bit more in terms of their ability to link you to other artists but that's just me i'll say wholeheartedly yes as well because for me with spotify specifically i mean we use it for for the podcast the podcast ourselves to link people to the albums we're reviewing but also for me I like in Spotify and the way they hyperlink artists and featured artists on an album to Wikipedia. You, on Wikipedia, you, everybody knows, anyone who uses it, you can dive down a rabbit hole, click from one link to another, an article to another, until you're on a completely different page that's completely unrelated to what you were looking at in the first place. In, in Spotify, you can also do the same. Um, I, my best example is I got into Nerdcore, which is a section of rap music that is very specific that I really like. It's rap music about movies, music, video games, cartoons, and it's great. And a lot of the artists have worked together because it's an indie community that's cl uh, close-knit. On Spotify, I listen to Shafer the Dark Lord as an artist I'm friends with, an artist I've been interview interviewed with before. Um, and so I was listening to his newest album, and he had one song that featured five other artists. And I'm like, well, who are these guys? And I clicked on their name, and it took me to their library. And then I listened to their stuff, who were featuring other artists who weren't on that other album. So I went to their stuff, and l next thing I know, I'm on an indie rock band's page through a dozen other pages, and now I've got 10 new bands I have to go buy the music for that I really like. Um, also, there's a kind of status page on the side of Spotify that tells you what other people are listening to. I don't often pay attention to it, but every so often I'll see a name that'll 
pop up or an album and go, what is that? That looks interesting and click through and give it a listen. And I think it's really helped me expand my library of music because as a kid, you know, again, depending on finances or whatever else, you're not going to just buy an album you know nothing about. But with Spotify and go, oh, this sounds pretty cool. Like I streamed Taylor Swift's new album. I like some pop music. I'm not a huge fan of hers. Her new album wasn't bad. I would spend the money on it because it's well-produced. It sounds good. The songs are good. And I don't know that I would have just gone out of my way and bought Taylor Swift's new record otherwise. otherwise. So, yeah, I think it's super helpful. Yeah, I uh, completely agree as well. <laughs> uh, You're but um, for a different reason, I feel that if streaming media is going to get more of a foothold, I feel that they should put a lot more focus on that particular thing, like the, the computer saying, hey, you should probably listen to this. Because yeah, it's, it's, it revolves around now, like who, who paid who what, and that's why like Spotify has more, Pandora has mm-hmm. less. And I was just saying, means I just I just know Pandora knows Spotify. Sure, yeah. It's black magic to me. Still. <laughs> so. But it's it's an important thing, and I think it's really going to be the driving force for streaming media because it's something that you know digital media, in a sense, and physical media lacks a bit is that perpetual voice giving you ideas. Uh, it's almost like a like a streaming muse for things to listen to. So if they put a little bit more focus on it, get the algorithms, like I said, a bit better. Because personally for me, I had a, a Pandora, Bare Naked Ladies uh, playlist that won't play anything anymore because it said, we ran out of things to play you. <laughs> and, like, and I think to myself, in all of music, there's nothing else out there that sounds like the way I want. Okay. So that had to I, feel good, though. I, I was bit, like, right? I finished the music. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Com- the completion is soon. You <laughs> must have been very sad for this. You completed Pandora. Achievement, Achievement unlocked. unlocked. Yeah. But um, I feel maybe in a few years, if they can, like, um, what was it? it like uh, what Google's doing with um, images. What is it called? Uh, deep Dream? If they, can, if they can deep dream up something, uh, I think that that could really give streaming media a bit more power that can make it, instead of it being uh, a little extra thing that we have now, it would be more like an actual contender. Sure. Um, thank you. That was a great question. Anybody else have a question? Want to come close to the mic and give an ask? Sure. Come on closer to the mic so we can pick you up just in case. It's a long question, and I can't remember to repeat it. Sure question on that. Um, <clears throat> in the indie music scene, mm-hmm. the wider scene now, it's a little bit easier to get the records because there's a couple of indie publishers that are doing the records. But for the local scene, it's still easier to make a CD or a USB stick on your computer at home. Do you ever think vinyl's going to enter back into the local scene again? Um, that's an interesting question. That's a much tougher one. Because so, so in case it didn't get picked up, um, <laughs> the gentleman asked, CDs are still easier for a local scene to produce, whereas vinyls, indie indie record labels and a lot of indie publishers are doing it, but local, like nobody has a vinyl creator in their basement. Um, I don't know. I feel like if they're ever... If they ever create a way that you can make a vinyl at home cheaply, like you can make a CD, then I, I think, sure, local people would probably do that because it'd be a fun project to create these intricate albums. Um, we have a friend named Painless Parker. He's a steampunk aesthetic, punk folk musician, complicated but very awesome. He doesn't believe in uh, uh, publishing CDs through major companies. He burns his own CDs and then hand makes the envelopes for every album. And I think that there's a kind of DIY 
ness about if you could make your own vinyl, people would get really into doing that. Like he has his own seal, he stamps all of his own records, writes the t- handwrites the title calligraphy. It's very awesome, and it makes it it feels like a collector's item. It doesn't feel like something you bought wrapped in plastic at a store. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it gives it a kind of very personalized feel. I think if vinyl ever creates a way to do that printing wise for the average Joe, like this Joe, um, it it could happen. But as of now, it's probably not a thing that would be able to be cost effective. It's really just a question of logistics. I mean, there are still places that that cut vinyls and they're very, very isolated, like small, tight knit communities. And they have been running this like family owned business for years and years and years. And now all of a sudden they're getting all these calls from from labels, from large labels, large, big name bands. And they're demanding that all of a sudden, well, we want all of our albums on vinyl. But, you know, with their manpower, they couldn't possibly do it on a local scene because, of course, the price would just be astronomical as far as what a local scene, what a local band could afford. So, yeah, it's another question of just for now. No, I don't know whether that will actually turn around in in, uh, 20 to 50 years or so. It really is going to have to be the original question of whether vinyl really does stick it. And if the technology comes to an existence. Speaking of which, I actually kind of... uh optimistically disagree that it'll take within 20 to 50 years oh um and it's just me because um i mean i mean 3d printers are getting cheaper and smaller every day true there could be a time where um someone could fabricate a record as easily as running it through a computer program and printing it out it's true there's potential in that respect um and i mean vinyls are just grooves and indentations and a 3d printer can do that so in theory you can make that happen mm-hmm. it's really just a lot of data at that point because be that would data. be on a micro scale and of course the material would need to be you know the material right mm-hmm. now is not nearly as as ductile as vinyl so uh but think about that as an india as a I local i still say artist. 50 years though i'm gonna <laughs> stick with that agree uh, to disagree <laughs> but but think about that as a local artist though like you've only put out one album and you didn't really mass produce it but you can go to some who has a 3D printer and they can make a run of your vinyl to sell at shows. I mean, that would probably feel pretty good to have a physical media that's so timeless and your music is on it. And so I think there's a power to that that could push along uh, a development that way too, depending on the who's who of those communities coming together. (laughs) Thank you for that question. Anybody else? Any other questions? Silence. Okay. Um, (laughs) I want to thank you, Joe, for being on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Um, It's our first live Crash Chords Autographs, a show that's just a little over a year old. So I'm thankful for giving you me the opportunity to do it live in front of an audience. Steve, thank you for joining me as my co-host. I I, hopped podcast to do this. Yes, (laughs) I appreciate it. And also, I I appreciate you kind of taking the reins in the front half of the show to give us a a structure to getting through what Vinyl Day really means, because I think that was an important focus to have. And we do topics like that on the main show a lot. And Steve is very focused on intricacies of kind of guiding us through a who's who or a what's what of a topic. Um, and shameless pitch, if anyone's interested in the main show, that's called simply the Crash Chords Podcast as opposed to Crash Chords Autographs. And there we spend like two hours really dissecting albums and going through it, you know, sometimes measure by measure if we have to in order to just, you know, find out what it really means and what it's about. And some of it is opinion-based. A lot of it is really just, it's a, it's an exercise in imagery, I think. It's what I think an artist would, uh, would appreciate. Um, both shows are available 
available on iTunes, Crash Chords Autographs and the Crash Chords Podcast. Um, they're both on our website, CrashChords.com, so you can go there as well to check us out. Um, is there any parting words you have for the audience or anything you want to talk about with Barnes & Noble specifically that you want to promote at the end? Um, all I'd like to say is thank everybody here for coming, um, and I hope everybody had fun here today at Vinyl Day, and that they continue to have fun through the rest of our Get Pop Cultured uh, month of July, and that... Everybody had a good time. Um, <laughs> well, and if you could please uh, say our sign-off, I would appreciate it. All righty. Uh, music is life, and life is good. If you enjoyed these interviews, please subscribe to this and the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post in the comment area below each post. And keep the discussion going, because remember... Music is life, and life is good.